I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could have me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is Tommy Robbie Robbie weekly. Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. For this year's Six Nations, William Hill have come on board to sponsor the podcast as well as all of the 42's coverage of the tournament. William Hill, it's who you play with. Please gamble responsibly and visit dunlewy.net on how to do so. My own name is Gavin Casey and joining me to preview the big one against France. As always, it's Murray Kinsler of the 42.ie. Murray, how are things? As always, excited. You're right, it is a big one. Can't wait for this game. And Bernard Jackman, delighted to have you on board as well. As always, how are things in your end, Birch? Yeah, good, thanks. Good. I'm a bit apprehensive about the weekend, but sure, we'll get to that. We'll talk you through it. We'll put you at ease, please God, by the end of it when we get, when we get your predictions. That'll be the key acid test of how this conversation goes. Uh, lads, pardon the French, but holy shit, it's been some week, Murray, uh, with uh, seemingly a campaign, really, in France to try and disqualify your Johnny Sexton from this match, or at least put seeds of doubt on this side of the water, and uh, we've had... Medical professionals uh, speaking about his history of head injury and so on. Uh, it seemed pretty nefarious, to be totally honest. And I don't know what the ethics or even the legalities of them are. I know one of the neurosurgeons has come out since and expressed his regret about the comments. Um, but it all felt a little bit pointed and extremely unseemly, didn't it? It certainly felt like a concerted campaign. It, it really picked up speed quickly and became a big story quickly. Um Obviously, the the doctor who worked with Johnny Sexton many years ago now, when he was over in Racing 92, people probably remember when he was stood down for 12 weeks with concussion-related issues. Um, It's the same doctor who made that recommendation to him, who came out and claimed that he thought Johnny Sexton had 30 concussions over the course of his career, and it really was eyebrow-raising stuff to read. Later that day, there was another neurologist uh, in France interviewed by Midi Olympique, um, and he was making claims as well and, and suggesting that Johnny Section shouldn't play. That would be sad if he plays a week later. Um, and obviously these people have, I suppose, expertise in their area as, as their titles befit. But it was really alarming and shocking to me that someone would come out uh, and give stuff like that on the record about someone they're not working directly with. Um, Johnny Sexton, I thought, handled it really well when he spoke to the media yesterday. Just underlining how shocked he was, how inappropriate it was. Um, how upsetting it was for his, some of his family, his, his mother and his wife in particular. And yeah, I thought he dealt with it quite well. As you say, Dr. Sherman has since, I suppose, clarified and apologised, which is, is good to see. But it feels highly inappropriate that in the week that Ireland are playing France, there's two French neurologists discussing Johnny Sexton's uh, incidents of head injury. And, and not that we want to diminish that issue, not that it isn't actually a a topic worth discussing but um, to be making big claims like that about a guy they're not working with closely to me again is really striking and I wonder about the ethics of it um, so yeah it's, it's a pity that this is the big story of the week in another French Ireland week it feels like we've been here before um, albeit obviously there is the recent head injury Johnny Sexton sustained last weekend and he's still going through the return to play protocols and um, if he comes through them he'll be he'll be fit to play but he was rightfully angry, I think, about the about the chat around his head injuries in France. Yeah, they know what they're doing all right. There's no doubt about it. Birch, what were your thoughts? You've worked in France. You've been a player. Uh, I don't know. It just felt 
unseemly, uh, uncalled for, and extremely deliberate. Yeah, I actually noticed Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Jean-Francois uh, Sherman. He uh, he is the go-to guy for any head injuries in in uh, in French rugby. So, um, you know, he uh, a lot of his income would come from from the French Federation, or the top fourteen uh, and Pro D two clubs. So, um, you know, he has spoken in the past a little bit, not in on individuals, but he has been. He's a he has a media presence there in that. You know he has been involved in in high profile players having to take breaks and some players retire or or, or whatever. Um, I just ran up by a, a a friend of mine who's a who's a surgeon last night, and he he said to me that if a doctor spoke like that in Ireland, there'd be a medical council issue that they would be brought up before the medical council because it's completely unethical. And and I, I'm at, like it's I just think that you know it's 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 all well and good he apologised, but the damage was done. And uh, it's highly unfair to, to Johnny Sexton. And as good as a neurologist as he as he apparently is, I mean, if he's able to diagnose players from the comfort of his own couch, um, he's way ahead of the, the rest of the world. And, uh, you know, I just don't think he should have commented. Um, you know, I, I think... I also don't think Johnny's had 30 concussions, or, or certainly I doubt if he's... Um, if, if, if that's a fact that he's is aware of, so um, I I just think he's he's fed the um, you know the frenzy that's in France around Ireland this week and uh, and particularly Johnny Johnny's a figure that the French um, see as being a talisman for Ireland um, you know he spent some time in France um, and they want to get at him and, and well, they're doing everything in their power to get at him uh, but this is this is stuff that shouldn't shouldn't be happening um, and if they want to get at him you know. The, the pitch is the place to get at him on on Sunday, and that's fair game, but not not this kind of nonsense, you know. We heard from you, Murray, about the Wales defeat with Owen Tulin on Monday morning for the 42 members. Members stop the 42.e if you want to get the extra rugby weekly podcast there. There are extra, extra ones as well now after the Six Nations games with Murray, but because it's the first time we're speaking to yourself this week, Bernard, let's just... Uh, touch upon some of the the key points from the game and get your interpretations of them. I don't think there's any debate about the red card, but could you put yourself in Peter Romani's head or body? Uh, it might be a dangerous thing to do and figure out what went wrong for him in that moment. Yeah, look, at I, I think um, you're, you're wound up all week in terms of um, the importance of quick ball, in terms of being effective um, in your cleans, in terms of creating creating space and um realistically you know it's a it's an opportunity to imp- or i suppose lay down uh, a marker physically at the breakdown um and there's often a fine line between being legal and illegal um and lots of times you are illegal actually technically to be honest uh, and, and and it goes unfortunately for peter um he overstepped the mark he, he you know there's no doubt it's a red card and i actually think to be honest the three weeks is probably lenient um, you know, I know he had good be uh, he behaved himself well at the meeting, etc. But I think three weeks is probably lenient enough given how serious the the collision was and how we're trying to get um you know those head contact uh, uh, uh incidents out of the game. So look, there's no excuse for it, but I can understand how it happened in terms of you know he's committed to to clean um Tom Francis. In fairness, ends up in a very unusual position where he's actually. His head is facing where Peter's coming from, whereas normally you clean someone who's who's going out the other way. Again, there's duty of care on the guy cleaning to um to take more care there. But I can see I can see how it happened in terms of just that split second of of trying to you know smash the rook 
and there's someone in a position that you don't expect um, and maybe it's too late to get out of it or maybe maybe you could have got out of it but when you do that you're you're risking um, you're risking the punishment that was a red card and I do think I know it's the first red card for Ireland in the Six Nations but unfortunately I think there is going to be over the next two or three years more red cards um, as the referees try and make the game safer and you know, I know Matt Williams um, spoke about this uh, NRL style on report. No, I, I don't think, I think a red card's a red card and the team suffers for 14 and if you can still win the game at 14, that's exciting and if you get blown away, uh, well, that's the punishment. So I don't see why we should go down NRL um, rules on that and, you know, it, it actually, to be honest, if that happened, players may not take as much care because... In the moment, they want to they want to impact the game and worry about the consequences later. So, uh, I I see no reason why we have to follow NRL. Um, and a red card in rugby union sh- could could affect the game in a negative way, and that's life. But it, but it's up to the the players to to realize that. So um, that's that's my opinion on that, which you didn't ask for. Sorry. And the last thing was um, yeah, I I actually had to watch the match again after listening to own uh own Toolan on the members podcast because. He saw things in our attack that I, I didn't see, um, positive things. So um, I went back and had another look at us. And yeah, I, I think that we're still very much in in transition and we're still trying to find our, our style of play. I actually had the same experience having listened to the members pod. I came away from the match almost, uh, I don't know, a little bit disillusioned with Ireland's attack with my untrained eye and rewatching it with a little bit of Owen's uh, expertise. It did... Uh, alleviate that a little bit Murray just to touch upon the NRL thing and I don't want to have a go at Matt Williams because he wasn't the only one um, bringing it up and I'm not, I'm not saying you're having a go at him either Birch but I couldn't really believe that this was an element of the discourse around uh, red cards at the moment and uh, supposedly ruining the spectacle of a game now as we uh, stressed or as you guys stressed on Monday's pod it didn't necessarily ruin the spectacle of the Wales Ireland game at all it has the capacity to do so obviously if a team is down to 14 for uh, the majority of a match but in a scenario in which there's a potentially transformative lawsuit uh, for the sport in relation to head injuries and when the sport itself and its governing bodies are trying to dissuade um, head high collisions and trying to protect players more I find it absolutely ludicrous uh, that people would broach the topic of trying to change the red card route at the moment as Bernard says uh, if you get a red card like that then you get a red card and if you don't want to play with 14 men then don't get a red card and I understand completely say with Omani it might be a little bit unlucky there are other challenges we've seen more recently which are probably more unfortunate still but really this rule is still kind of or the application of the rule is still in its infancy like I think it needs time for players to be able to adapt more uh, probably more technical tackling coaching and so on work at the breakdown uh, and allow it to sort of have the benefits that it was supposed to have rather than rushing to try and change it at the moment to the potential detriment of players health absolutely we want to reduce contact with the head what's the biggest deterrent it's a red card it's giving the team more of a chance of losing. That's the only way you're going to change player behavior in any aspect. And a red card is absolutely going to change behavior. You'll see it. It's, it's, in, it's going to be in players' heads even this weekend. Within that game itself, I felt you could see in some of the clear-out work, there was a slight, not a hesitation, but an adjustment and an awareness and a bit more scanning to see where heads were. Because, of course, it's going to be in your mind. Um, and that needs to be the case. Players... 
obviously have to bring real physicality and a, let's be honest a violent edge to a lot of breakdown work that is the reality of it you're trying to hurt people so they don't come back into that position but not by hitting them in the head you're trying to get quick ball by being really effective with your your technical work as you say as well as that aggression but it can't be at the cost of potentially hitting someone's head um, and that applies to the tackle as well so for me the, the deterrent is a red card I don't see any issue with it yeah there's going to be frustrations for teams that lose in players but you're the one putting yourself in that position you've got to have a real duty of care and an awareness of where your shoulder and arms could potentially end up um, and there was definitely no there was definitely no argument in this case even the way he tucks his left his left arm which is something that Omani has done before that chicken wing as they describe it um, there have been instances of it before and you would imagine that given the stakes in that game and the, the punishment doled out and the cost to his team, there's a there's a lesson for him and for his teammates as well. So that's what you get with a red card. And I totally agree. I think reducing the punishment, the sanction level, just diminishes that and, and doesn't allow players to have that awareness of, of the, the head and, and protecting it at all costs. So I definitely think red card is the right way for these decisions. And I definitely think there needs to be as much discussion on it as possible. Even the Johnny Williams one with Gary Ringrose Clearly, they didn't feel it was worth a sighting, so maybe they felt it was just a yellow card. But let's hear that. Let's actually say, like, Six Nations, even if it's talking to a few journalists, so we can let people know this is how they felt about this particular instance, and this is why it wasn't a red card or a sighting. Um, I think that's good for everyone, including the players and the supporters. So that education side of it is massive as well. Yeah, no, sorry, just on that, I think, the, uh, you know, I, I saw uh, as a broadcaster or whatever, I, I was given, um, given sight of what World Rugby issued to the referees and, and the coaches pre this six nations and um there's certainly frustration from world rugby's point of view that the um the officials haven't been as tight on the uh using the red card as a punishment um and they've there's been a feeling that they've been looking for mitigating factors <clears throat> too much and it's been reiterated that that's not the case and i, I think the wayne barnes you know wayne's barnes live missed it um and even despite tom francis bringing attention to it but brilliant work as a as an official team to um to flag it quickly to go through it and not look for mitigating factors because there wasn't any there and um i just thought it was a great example week one and players definitely will react to that they will i remember when sam warburton got done for the spear tackle back on i think elaine roland i remember the following week you know us talking around you know how careful we have to be and stuff so little moments like that do have a big impact on the on the uh, pro players uh, and they they will behave or they will change and as i said i think world rugby saw the referees weren't being as hard as they should have been so that's a that's an interesting that's a an important point and wayne barnes has followed that round one hopefully now we see an, a change in players behaviors the second one on johnny williams yeah i think if i had i don't know why uh, I think the first time the replay came back was was after that phase of play, and it been moved on to something else about four minutes afterwards. So um, TMO just must have missed it. He just and that that's human error. I I I think if he sees it, it's probably it's at least a yellow. Um, it's it's, it's definitely yellow and maybe a red. I think there probably was mitigating factors in 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 that to a certain extent. It's a different type of of contact, but I think it's a yellow. Um, so Ireland can feel hard done by for that. But I think that was a case of just where. The TMO didn't get a chance to see it until 
it had gone too far for him to be allowed to come back in and 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 flag it, and that happens. That's that's part of the of the rules around it. So I think it was as I said, I think it was four minutes before what we saw. It was four minutes after we saw it before it came back on a replay, and that must be when he saw it. Um, and obviously they looked at it and didn't decide it was a red card, and that's why he wasn't cited. But I think he probably could have. As I agree, with Murray, he could have been cited and then let them decide if if it was a yellow card offence or a red card offence. But um, all the players and coaches will want will is has much consistency as they can around you know head contact and unfortunately in that game you know we had a clear red and we had a marginal red that wasn't looked at so um yeah it wasn't perfect but look at it it'll take a little bit a little while to get it right i think when you say that the tmo might not have seen it until the replay that we saw on tv are they dependent on the like they're not dependent on the actual match broadcast though are they are you saying that it just the replay itself might not have made its way to the tmo before that at any stage yeah well they are they are to be honest when they when they stop it they are reliant on the on the on the broadcasters to give them certain angles and um so they're not they're not technical gurus in terms of how to how to how to compile footage and and, and take different angles so they are relying on someone in the truck usually uh, i'm not sure about the six nations so i remember in the world cup um the tmos were 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 watching the game on a slight delay um so that they could potentially pick up something a little bit quicker. I'm not sure how the TMO is is, is viewing the match now. Is it is it live live or is it on a slight delay? Um, but realistically, yeah, he, he may not have seen that live and moved on to the next breakdown or the next tackle incident. And it was only when, as I said, I think it was four minutes later, we saw it. Like Johnny Williams had made two or three more tackles in that period before he went off for HIA itself, which is... Um, which is interesting. And I don't know if Johnny Williams realised he had a concussion or whether it was when it came up on the big screen. Um, when we saw it, as I said, on a, on a delay, that the, the physios or the Welsh medics saw it and then obviously said, oh, look, at that that can't be good and took him off and he failed his HIA. So, um, yeah, it, it's not perfect. And I said, I'm not sure. I, I think the TMO saw that for the first time when we saw it, to be honest. In relation to uh, Billy Burns' kick at the end then, right, we have to broach it and we're going to talk about uh, the out-half situation for Ireland anyway as we look ahead to France. But looking at that uh, kick-to-touch, Bernard, there was so much debate afterwards as to whether or not he should have tried to pin it in to the five. I'm not sure if he's actually trying to do that. Like, I think the ball skews off his boot in a very unnatural way and he may have been trying to be a little bit more conservative than it actually looked. I don't know, did you have a, any thoughts on that in terms of the, the actual technique of the kick? And uh, I'd love to know what you made yeah. of the situation overall. Yeah, look, it's obviously a, a high-profile error, but we, we see it we see it quite a bit, actually, you know, kicks out in the full. Um, it's, and we saw one from Johnny a little bit earlier, but we do see it, it happens. Um, I, I'd like to hope he was going for the five, um, but yeah, his technique let him down, and I wonder... I wonder was it a, a um a factor his previous uh errors you know he just seemed to be a little bit out of sync like his passing game which is usually phenomenal um just wasn't on uh, um you know on form his, his his kick pass game which again is very good obviously he overcooked one so whether he was just like um yeah just a little bit flustered and, and didn't use his, his normal technique because his technique was was very poor but I would like to I, I I'd like to give the benefit of the doubt and say yeah he was trying to put the team five yards out to give him a chance in the 83rd minute to to win the game and um it's 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 difficult um and and the more you push it um you know the, the higher the risk but I think you know I, I think you want your 10 to to give you a shot so you want you need him to be aggressive 
Um, unfortunately, he just didn't execute it. The Johnny Sexton one that he misses is every bit as relevant. It's obviously the end game always gets the focus because it's most recent, and you're so right to mention it. Johnny Sexton misses touch. What is it? Twenty-one thirteen. It's a massive moment in the game. I'm just checking my notes to see where we are. Sixty-seventh minute. Like there's still plenty of road left in the game there. And that's a massive error as well, but hasn't really been discussed because it's not as recent as Billy Burns, who's under a fair degree more pressure at that stage in the game. Sexton obviously kicked out on the full as well at one stage just to sap them of momentum after half time. And those errors were every bit as costly. Keith Earl's given away a penalty and following up by kicking out on the full. Gary Ringrose really uncharacteristic um, offloading. Just maybe it was on, maybe Johnny Sexton would have got away, but it just didn't feel like the right time when you're down. And then they accentuated that. Conor Murray knocks it on the ground and then flicks a ball at Henderson who knocks it on. That's a comedy of errors, really. So for me, all those errors were more relevant, actually, than Billy Burns right at the death. Obviously, it's exciting. It's dramatic. You have one last chance, but it's a desperate last throw of the dice. It is a bad error from him. He'll have to live with that and bounce back from it, and I'm sure he will. But, I mean, Sexton made exactly the same errors, but they just won't be as focused on um, and Billy Burns was in a tough position trying to change and save the game for, for Ireland. That's not to excuse it, but um, I'm just trying to point out that the other out half who was on the pitch for, for the whole game nearly made those same errors. And, and it does happen, but it wasn't just on Billy Burns, definitely. No, totally not. I think uh, people trying to blame Billy Burns for why Ireland lost the game are uh, in cuckoo land. You know what I mean? He was a, a factor in why Ireland didn't win the game at the end, but for so long it didn't actually feel like a game they had a right to win anyway. I, I, I do think, though, contextually, and this is why, and we're going to talk about the reaction to Burns' kick specifically, uh, the build-up of anticipation from a point of seemingly no return with Ireland starting from about 80 yards down the field and how well they had done to get up to that point, it's the deflation then of Burns' kick that evinces this kind of reaction from people, like just this exhalation of grief, you know, because you had allowed yourself to get excited, I hope, if you're an Ireland fan in that moment. And those Sexton ones, as much as they absolutely are relevant uh, and equally relevant, uh, they didn't have the same feel to them because the game was at a kind of a more nip and tuck uh, place. I have to say, watching Burns kick go out and while my head is in my hands, the fact that it takes about three seconds for me to... Uh, sort of cast my mind towards the abuse he's going to receive inevitably is an indictment on kind of modern society we're not going to get too philosophical about it but I just think there's something drastically wrong with the fact that even in a moment of of grief if you like as a fan uh, you're automatically thinking of the fact that the player who has made this human error which he literally didn't mean to do uh, is going to get uh, bear the brunt of it in a kind of really horrible way online and so it proved. It, it took about two, three minutes if you looked at his uh, replies to previous posts on social media and so on. The comments started. Somebody had edited his Wikipedia page within about 10 minutes. And I have to say, it's just, uh, it's dispiriting and depressing beyond belief, Murray. You and I work on the internet. We're, we're probably accustomed to it to a degree and maybe conditioned to it and even a little bit desensitized to it. But uh, I just wanted to talk about it because there was a lot of members actually in the WhatsApp group and, and a few other people who got in touch as well who wanted us to broach it as a topic. It's incredibly prevalent now as well in football and uh, in other walks of life, to be honest. In football, it's probably more so in relation to racist abuse, uh, which is even more horrific again. But you'd wonder what goes through the mind of somebody who feels compelled to abuse somebody on a personal level for an error like this. 
it, yeah, it's appalling. It's as if other people don't make mistakes in their lives. Certainly not deliberate errors. Any of this stuff we've mentioned, I think you can be critical and point out that it was costly without getting personal. I don't understand how someone flicks into Twitter, bothers to type in his name, find him and send him a message. It's just, it's sad and, and repulsive behavior to me. And it is a growing issue. I don't know if it's with lockdown and everyone being stuck at home. I certainly feel more aware. Maybe I'm online more and noticing it more, but it feels like it's grown and become more commonplace. It, and obviously very topical with football and Aaron Connolly and deactivating his account. It does seem to be happening more and getting a little bit more vicious. And um, it is a, a worrying part of society. And I think a number of people have pointed out, I, I always have felt this, I don't think you should be able to be anonymous on social media. I know that people with work and, and things like that don't want to have their profile out there, but for me, you got to accept then that that's your circumstances. I think if you're going to have the ability to comment and direct message at people, there should be some accountability. Um, it's just appalling to think of people sending those messages publicly and probably privately as well. I hope someone like Billy Burns or whoever just has avoided it this week because those people who are sending those messages they don't have anything to add or any value to add to him apart from making him feel miserable. They don't have any qualification or expertise in, in what he does for a living in comparison to him and the people around him. So you would hope that he's avoided it because if he doesn't, it's very hard to ignore. It's very hard not to let negative messages, the way our brains are wired, you, you focus on those. And definitely for players, that's, I suppose, part of the education of being a professional. If you're going to have social media, then you've got to be able to completely filter it out I think because it can have a damaging effect and, and it can negatively affect you next time you go and do something um yeah but I, I just say it's it's pathetic really to think that people are doing that I don't think any of our listeners w- would be in in that bracket at all but I think people are right now to call it out when they see it there's more of that as well online I think that's good to see because it's just unacceptable behavior it's the dehumanization of it, Birch, is, is kind of key here, right? So the lack of kind of uh, human empathy in a broader, broader sense, but also the anonymity of accounts in most situations, I'd suggest, as they pertain to online abuse. And also the fact that people behind these accounts are not viewing the likes of Billy Burns as a human being. They're just seeing him as this kind of entity on their television that's caused them some pain or suffering in a, on a kind of an incredibly minor level. Um I have to say, like in in relation to the uh, prevention of anonymous accounts, there are like I, I know there have been discussions with say Instagram and Facebook and so on. One of the community managers from Facebook came out yesterday talking about the Premier League and mentioned they'd have meetings about that, but they feel as though because there are so many countries and areas of the world in which you have no access to actual identification. Uh, that would preclude you then from owning an account. Uh, and there, look, there are other complications uh, along those lines. Uh, it, it's what I can't really figure out is like how somebody could look at what Billy Burns did and just feel as though I'm repeating myself, but just feel compelled to abuse him. I know Bernard, you've probably had situations as well, probably more so as a coach than as a player, right? Because the advent of social media was like a, probably a little bit later than uh, than your heyday as a player. But when you were a coach in Wales, when you were a coach in France, this was probably a problem, if not quite as big a problem as it is now. Yeah, absolutely. I would have had you know, uh, after a loss or or whatever, you'd have you know direct messages or or tagging you in uh, in posts and 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 ridiculing you, etc. And, and and I've seen players suffer. You know, players who've made high profile mistakes. You know, get on the on the back end of uh, of some really distasteful um, messaging. But uh, that the social media side of it didn't really bother me because 
uh, I just thought they were cowardly, you know, just absolute cowards. Uh, so and I wouldn't, I wouldn't respect them. But I remember, uh, I remember at a, at a game in, in in the Dragons and and uh, we lost the game. We were walking towards the sheds and and I looked into the stand and there was this fella. Uh, uh, he was obviously there with his with his daughter and his son. And I'd say the daughter was probably about fourteen, and and the son was around twelve. And my my daughter is fourteen, my son is twelve, and he was just giving like the team and and myself like unbelievable abuse, and you could see the hatred in his face. And I actually felt incredibly sad. Uh, I, I, like it affected me for two or three days, just thinking about those poor kids, and what chance do they have when when someone who should be a role model for them is just full of hatred and spite and and feels it's 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 okay to do that you know and, and that's my big like i honestly my i don't get angry with them really i feel i feel really sad for them and for i hope they're not they're not being an influence on other people in their life young people particularly who who maybe need some guidance or need good role models because it's um it's a pathetic way of of gaining pleasure or making yourself feel better is to attack others and uh um and it's hard i know for younger players to, to see that because maybe we are um you know we we want constant feedback and we and, and to feed our egos we want to be liked or whatever but the reality is like you know and i said it before is that i wouldn't ask anyone for advice or i wouldn't listen to someone's criticism we wouldn't ask for advice and that doesn't mean they have to be highly successful it just means they have to be somebody who's solid you know has, has good value and, and warrants respect it's not don't have to be the top of the top of the world uh, and you know we should take on we should be willing to listen to other people's opinions but they need to deserve some respect and it needs to be measured. And the type of stuff you see on, on social media, the stuff you see on, you know, attacking Billy Burns. Um, I don't know if those people ever played sport, understand sport, understand winning, losing in life. Um, you know, I, I just don't know what they, what, what, where they're coming from uh, and uh, what they expect to gain from us. And if you get, if you get pleasure making other f people feel bad, um, well then, you know, best of luck. That, that's, that, that's all I can say. Bringing it back to the on-field stuff, Murray, and to stick with Ten for a moment, like, if Johnny Sexton wasn't fit, I think Andy Farrell would have no option but to start Billy Burns in this game because I don't think you can give him the vote of confidence in having him as your backup 10 and based on 10 or 15 minutes then sort of revoke that status uh, within the space of a week. I think you, you give him a chance to right the wrongs. And if Sexton is fit... I think Burns has to be the backup 10 again and, and give him an opportunity off the bench if it presents itself. Uh, I know that, for example, people have been sort of suggesting this could be the, the end for him and that he's just not up to it at that level. Uh, I think that's harsh based on a really small sample size. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Well, they're very hopeful that Johnny Sexton's going to play, obviously, and Johnny Sexton himself is very hopeful he's going to come through the remaining protocols and play. Um, I suppose just briefly to touch on that, I've, I don't have medical expertise and, and the HI process is what it is and if it's seven days you can play again. I'm never comfortable seeing that personally. I just, you know, I don't like seeing a player take a head knock and be able to play the next week but that's the reality of of the rugby protocols at the moment and as Ireland have reiterated several times, they're going to do the best for Johnny Sexton. He's not going to be stupid um, and if he comes through those protocols, okay, he's going he's gonna to start the game and be captain. I still think that Billy Burns will be on the bench if, if Johnny Sexton does make it. I think he's the number two coming into the championship. Yes, he made errors. And as we've discussed, they were at a heightened kind of period of pressure. There were a couple of nice touches as well. He had some decent moments when he came on. And obviously, 
in the autumn he did some really good things as well. Uh, you think of his chip for Jacob Sockler's try in England uh, against Georgia. He obviously finished a try nice. He had some lovely link-up play with Stockdale in particular at fullback, and he's been consistent for Ulster. I, I don't think I, I personally don't think that Billy Burns is ever going to be the kind of franchise out half for for want of a better phrase for Ireland that he's the answer long term that he's going to be starting there at the next World Cup I'm not quite sure of that um, but I certainly don't think Andy Farrell and his coaches will be completely swayed by the the 15 minutes or whatever when he came on even when he came on at 12 he did or when he came on for Henshaw for the HIA he actually linked up with Johnny Sexton nicely once or twice in attack and he had a couple of good tackles as well so there are bits in there that'll be positive and certainly international coaches aren't as knee-jerk I suppose as as the rest of us obviously Ross Byrne would love another chance and a chance where he's not starting against England <laughs> but starting against France would be much better to be honest um, and, it, and, I, and it is still relevant the succession planning for 10 and what happens next I guess the person who's missing from it all is Joey Carberry it does sound like he's getting close now that he may be involved towards the end of this month with Munster which would be absolutely brilliant to see obviously Paddy Jackson's missing from that succession planning as well for reasons that never would have been foreseen but still I think they could have reacted and pivoted to the circumstances better and given those guys who are next in line behind Johnny Sexton a little bit more exposure so that they're not thrown in at the very deep end when it comes to it when Johnny gets injured and someone's just pitched in there and it's really tough to to deal with the expectation and pressure so there's all sorts of elements tied up in that um, if Johnny Sexton comes through this week- weekend he's going to start and I'd expect in that event that Billy Burns will be on the bench looking to offer something different when he comes on late in the game. But, but Bernard, to pick up on Murray's point there, uh, in relation to the sex, success, the succession plan, uh, it, I have sympathy for the RFU, really, in that they probably had a lot of eggs in Joey Carberry's basket. On the flip side of that, though, he hasn't really been fully fit for about two years. So at a certain point, you need a, a contingency plan to the succession plan, and it doesn't feel as though we have one at the moment. Like, even the fact that we don't really know who the best backup 10 is and the fact that there are people clamoring for say Harry Burns inclusion uh, while he realistically won't feature at all uh, isn't involved uh, kind of speaks to I don't know the ambiguity around uh, who succeeds Sexton if Carberry isn't fit which he isn't going to be at, in international terms for a while yeah, it's 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 a strange one actually because we actually have lots of tens. Um, so Billy Burns is very good for Ulster. Jack Carty is very good for Connacht. Madigan is is a proven you know uh, campaigner at at out half and has played international rugby. And then you know Munster have probably their best the best option. Joey's been injured, so they've got JJ, um, who you know probably isn't. Well, hasn't got a chance to to prove it, and, and probably doesn't. Probably live behind the others to be honest. And then you've got three really good young tens in 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 Munster in Flannery Healy Crowley, and then you've got you know Ross Byrne who we know what he can do um, and probably deserves a shot uh, with a better setup around him or against a, maybe a oh no not a better setup yeah not, I wouldn't care about the opposition I just think he'd love it'd be great for him to have a chance with a plan you know to go in and actually with a plan because if you look at the game against France and and England that he's played I mean no one seemed to know what they were doing and the pack were. Were beaten up and it just all came back onto him um so i think he's been unharshly judged um on, on what we've seen in the green jersey um, and then we've harry Byrne, who looks great but hasn't played european cup yet and would have played except for hurting his back um obviously uh, in the, in december so we have lots of bodies and um, we've loads of players the problem is i think um the the 
the backlog, and I, and I, I, I chatted about this yesterday with Don Lennon. I, I think that some of these lads should should be, um, should be moved on loan for a, a period elsewhere. Um, and I, and you know, you know, we're gonna talk about France in a second. But Thomas Ramos, um, you know, who's played fullback for France, plays for Toulouse, spent a full year with Colombia, uh, where he played every week, kicked goals. Um, and it was a big part of his development because he was blocked by the likes of Maidard and Huge, etc. Um, now he's back. He's back in Toulouse and, and he, he's a key part of, of, of that back line. And, you know, we know that Rog spoke to, to Crowley um, and, and Crowley decided to stay. But why can't why can't that decision or, or become less conf, uh, of a conflict? Um, you know, I'm sure Crowley felt if I leave Munster, I'll never come back. But why can't that decision be done between La Rochelle, Munster, Crowley, the RFU, um, and say, look at, you know, you have Joey, he's going to come back. We've got JJ, who's apparently signed a new contract. We've Ben Healy now, who's got first run at it. So, you know, he's he's earned the right to be third choice, for for example. Um, and But we still like, you know, we really believe in you, Jack, and we believe in, 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 uh, in Flannery as well. You know, could we find opportunities for them, even if it's only for three months, to go somewhere and play every week? And that's... That's something, and I think the RFU have got it really wrong in terms of the David Nusifora player movement policy in that it's always conflict between two provinces. Um, so if you're Rio Cullen, you know, you, you know, and, and he's asked to move Max Deegan to, to Ulster or to Connacht, for example, of course he's going to say no because he knows he's probably never going to get him back, right? Um, whereas if he was, if there, and I mean, just using Max Deegan as, a, as an example, if, like, I, I'm in a... I have a couple of WhatsApp groups with coaches or whatever. And every Monday morning, um, you know, someone's looking for a player. You know, even in COVID where there's players galore uh, looking for jobs, every Monday morning, someone has an injury crisis and they need a player for a month, three months, whatever. Wouldn't it be great if they actually came into the Irish system and they had someone in Ireland where they rang and said, look at, you know, because uh, they love it. Like Irish players are, are well-respected across the UK and, and France. Um and, you know, it was a conversation with Leo or Johan or, or Andy Friend or, or Dan McFarland and someone a little bit lower down the depth chart who has potential, who could become a, a player for Ulster or for Connacht or, or, or for Ireland, was maybe moved for a little while. And I, I think suddenly then we could, you know, we, we'd, we'd have a far bigger uh, depth chart in certain positions. And I go back to the World Cup where, you know, we left Devon Toner at home, we brought John Klein. And it was a bit of a gamble. A gamble failed, but there was a guy over in Paris, Dunnick Ryan, who would have done an incredible job for us. He would have called the lineouts. Uh, would have been brilliant in the squad. Um, who could have went? So I, I, and that's that's a high profile example of and and I know there's a big push to keep the top top players here. So we can we can argue argue that at a later stage. But for youngsters, you know, to go and spend some time playing the championship potentially. And look at it's a, it's. A, I don't even mind if it's if it's all Ireland League, but obviously that's not happening at the moment. But realistically, I think for a youngster to get away to to play in France or England for a block, even with a chance with a, a contractual obligation that if there's an injury crisis they can come back, um, and let the player let the club over in France or England take the risk on that, you have a better chance of actually, you know, really testing these guys because at the moment, as I said, we're not 100 percent sure about Harry Byrne, we're not 100 percent sure about Flannery, Crowley, Ben Healy. Um, just to take four and it'd be great to see them play more yeah it's spot on because we, we haven't even just to jump on that we haven't even seen Jack Crowley like here's a guy who by all accounts including Ron O'Gara who's a decent judge of a 10 I would say is good enough to play for Ireland and actually be a really important player in the future that's what his potential level is but 
he's got a tiny bit of exposure against Ulster late on in a game and that's the extent of it um, and that is an issue like the top 14 has massive advantages because it has 14 teams someone like Roman Intimac is going to be get through earlier obviously to lose a big club but it's across that there's going to be more opportunity because there's more clubs and the data and stats back that up massively it's been the case for a long time every year you come into the under 26 nations and a lot of the French squad have already played senior rugby whereas the Irish guys are miles away someone like Thomas O'Hearn in the second row now we can all see the potential but he's really not playing a lot of games at all and that is both the strength of the Irish system and that it's so bloody hard to be a starting player there's such a, a tight narrow funnel to, to get into those teams but at the same time the opportunities are limited when you've got a decent depth chart and it, it certainly is an issue Jake Flannery's not even in, in the discussion where he's getting minutes at 10 for Munster um, and that's without Joey Carberry playing or, or available so that is a big thing for Ireland I actually like your suggestion Bernard a bit more openness to guys getting experience here or there when available and let's be honest I mean it's probably easier for you know I think you still keep your identity of you know I'm a Munster man I'm a I'm a Connacht man and this is just this is just like look at all English Premiership soccer teams how you know they send players on loan as part of of their development and go down to the second and 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 first division, and even last week, um, you know, there was an article in the paper about a young uh, Irish kid who's in Man City, who's on who's on loan at the moment, and the constant, um, you know, the constant communication that the Man City Academy um, coaches have with him, reviewing. So he's still very much part of Man City, but he's away for a little while to to get that experience. And as I said, I think it's also going to take away all that infighting as well around. You know, keeping players, keeping players, because we don't want to strengthen another province, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, why would why would Leinster want to strengthen someone else? You know what I mean? But if you could twist it a different way and say, look, this can help the player develop, and then it'll also help you because the player you're going to bring back is going to have had 15, 20 games, and it's not. You know, we spoke about France there, but like Cameron Redpath, you know, played English under twenties, and now he's been a star player for Scotland um, at the weekend. Um, He's he's ahead had a hell of a lot of of, of top end, um, but he's had a lot more top end game time um, in, in 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 club rugby in England than some of our young players who played against them a year ago or two years ago. Mm. And London Irish have tried to foster that link, haven't they? They've they've yeah. been on the record a number of times now about we've tried to get onto the RFU, but there's no interest there. There's an easy yeah, but avenue. <laughs> but like again, why why have like why shut people out? You know what I mean? Why? Why have this like frictional relationship with London Irish who have str- traditionally have strong links to Ireland? I know it may have been lost at, at different periods, but suddenly you could have a, a a good relationship and effectively not be a fifth province, but just have have an ally somewhere where we could potentially get player. And like, look at maybe maybe it's going to be the maybe it'll be financial. You know, maybe eventually because of of, of COVID, the IRFU will will say. Okay, it's not just about developing players. It's actually about you know managing some of our budgets. Um, so that might be the the driving force. But I don't think it should have been financial. I think, I think it, um it can be part of players' development. And it's not rocket science. I mean, you know, um, it's been happening for for donkeys years in other sports where young players are 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 loaned for a period to develop. Um, so we're not ahead of the curve. We're miles behind it. 
Let's chat about France, gents, before we wrap. Uh, I've probably managed the uh, timekeeping pretty poorly again this time around. We've got about 10 minutes before you have to head off on a work called Birch. But I know you were keen as well to speak about Fabien Galtier. Um, uh, But I suppose we haven't really spoken too much, and probably nobody has, uh, about France's victory over Italy because the other two games were uh, so much closer and so much more interesting in a lot of ways. But what did you see from France that... Uh, impressed you or, or even surprised you in that 40 point win over the Italians yeah look I'm not surprised by it I think um, the the only worry the, what impressed me was their ability to go and be quite ruthless and, and knock up a big score they've traditionally probably underperformed a little bit or got frustrated by Italy but that was was pretty clinical very impressive and it's just how easy they find scores. They, they, you know, they don't have to have the ball for long periods. They don't have to to grind you down. They can score quite early in the phases, which is um, is testament to their to their individual brilliance. Um, and even when you know they don't launch, like, so the 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 Dupont try from the inside pass from Teddy Thomas. I mean, it's poor delivery from the line out. Does you know it should be able to be shut down? Now, poor defense from Italy, but they just have they have people like Teddy Thomas who have the ability to beat people and. And then their support play is much improved, um, and so they can score from long range. So, um, yeah, not nothing surprised by by them because we know they have a lot of quality. But impressed by how quickly they've got into their stride, and and um, you know how how yeah how how they look to be up and running quick yeah straight away, which is worrying. They look so fundamentally sound, Murray, don't they? Like, that's what concerns me. We've spoken in the past about how often they kick the ball, for example. I'm not sure if it was that really evident against the Italians because it wasn't probably necessary, but they actually look like a team that can play, if you like, nearly like perfunctory rugby, but to an extremely high level. All of the... Like, the capacity for flair and the capacity to score from anywhere is still there, but the basics are also there now. So they always had that attacking ability. What I like about this setup is that it's organized they look extremely well coached which definitely wasn't always the case with the french national team often you'd say this team doesn't look well coached they didn't look fit they've got a whole new coaching staff there and they ticked all the boxes really nicely there's a guy called uh, thibaut Giroux, um who's in charge of the athletic development side of it they look much fitter some of them are leaner there seems to be a lot more work between them and the top 14 clubs in terms of getting guys up to match fitness for test level rugby and I think you can see that even when they give up a line break, they work so much harder. Even support play and attack, they work so much harder to be in good positions. <clears throat> so they've got that side of it nailed down. And then their coaching staff, I think Byrne's going to talk about Galtier because he'd have good insight onto him. There's a technical, tactical genius who runs that side of the game. They got in Rafael Ibanez, who's also an experienced head coach in his own right as the kind of manager, really good personality, works well with people, which Galtier doesn't. He's ticking that box. William Servat is in a scrum coach, a guy who's got loads of experience himself. Um, Kareem Ghazal running the, the line out. Again, he's obviously played a lot in the top 14. Lauren Labide is the attack coach, and he was a really experienced head coach himself. So you're getting an idea of, of this unbelievable level of experience, as well as Sean Edwards, one of the best assistant coaches the game's ever seen, and a guy who has clearly made a big impact on their defence, which is a massive part of their, their game as well. And as you mentioned, the kicking side is... A guy called Vlock Silliers, who I know Bernard probably he's in, in your coaching groups and seems to be doing brilliant work with the kicking side of the game. Even against Italy, when they did kick, it was you know the attacking kicks were bang on the money. All their exit kicks were exceptional and they didn't mess around their own half, which they used to do a lot of. So that is a really comprehensive, clearly defined and experienced and balanced coaching staff that Bernard Laporte has put in there. 
I wouldn't say it was cheap. I'd say a lot of expense has gone into that. But for me, you can see the results on the pitch. They're well coached. They're organized, as you say, defense, work rate, uh, line out, scrum. Everything's ticked. Uh, and then you throw in the likes of DuPont and Teddy Thomas and what, can, what they can do. And you've got a very complete team that is going to get better. There's a lot of growth still in, in quite a few of those players. So, yeah, I've really enjoyed watching what they've done. I don't think they're perfect yet. And Italy gave them really good chances to score. Like fair play to them, they were trying to play ambitiously, but I thought they were loose and gave up some really good opportunities, having had a bit of promise when they when they were in possession. Ireland definitely won't do that as frequently, but this is a, a really strong French team that's only going to get stronger. Birch, talk to us about Galtier, the man at the helm. Yeah, so um, so my old boss in, in Grenoble, Fabrice Landreau, uh, played for Stade Francais with Fabien and... Um, Back in the day, they they sacked uh, John Connolly, the Australian, with about players uh, had a few bad results, and uh, Fabian took over as and, and for, as backs coach, and Fabrice took over as 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 uh, player forwards coach. And both of them were player coaches, and they end up winning the top fourteen um, in that year, like uh, which is pretty phenomenal in terms of um, you know having having a coaching staff and, and winning it. But he so he was always seen as being this as being the next French coach because he was a brilliant player and a t- typical French nine, you know, uh, the Petit General. And uh, he went to Montpellier and quite early in his Montpellier days, they actually got to a top 14 final and probably should have won it. Um, and from there, it kind of, it went a little bit pear-shaped and and, and they weren't back in, in a final. And eventually he, he fell out with uh, the president there, Altrad. But um, a couple of guys I coached ended up going to Montpellier and, and, and speaking to them uh, like in terms of technical ability, there has there, I don't think it's a French coach who could lay a handle handle on him. And uh, like when I say exact and precise, so for strike plays, I mean you know in terms of the setup and and initial starting point, he's exact to a centimeter. You know most coaches are exact to a foot. You know what I mean? And that's uh, so he has this perfect idea of where you need to be at the right time and as a centimeter. And for a lot of players, that fries their head because. They can't deal with that detail, and and you know I know one player that that I that I had that went there, um, who wasn't who was just a battler. He wasn't he didn't have any X factor. He didn't have the ability of a Dupont. He broke him. I mean he made you know he he broke him down and like he was a mess. He was crying after training. He, he just finished him and he he kept came back to Grenoble. Um, so he's very hard on players who don't have the ability, and also by all accounts, the the monotony of a top fourteen season. And week in, week out, probably didn't suit him uh, because he wants to be excited. He wants to be playing against the best, and um, so he he ended up leaving Montpellier. Um, and during he did a lot of TV, so I used to meet him do TV, and and um, like he gets the game. And I know that Joe Schmidt probably didn't copy many people in his career, but he certainly kept a close eye on on what Fabian Galtier was doing in Montpellier. I know that for a fact. So there's a there's a testament to how good he is. Um, and, and I think what he's found now, what he what he has now with France is a coaching staff who challenge him, excite him, who speak to him, you know, on a, on a very high level, intellectually around, you know, what they should be doing. And he's enjoying all that. And he doesn't have to deal with the press because Ibanez looks after that. He doesn't have to deal with Bernard Laporte or the clothes because all that stuff's been sorted out. So literally he goes into camp, a bit like Warren Gatland in that they go into camp for a block of Six Nations and it's really intense and it's it's you know it's exciting because you're playing the best teams in Europe 
And then he goes away and he does his TV and he does his commercial stuff and his business interests and he gets a bit of a breather and then he comes back in again. So I think he's found, and also he's got a generational players who who can can do the things that he 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 uh, he could do himself. And it's a bit like Glenn Hoddle, you know, getting frustrated with English players not being able to to put the ball on a plate from a free kick and shows them and that kills him. You know what I mean? Fabian Fabian is now has a group of players I think who. Who, who understand it, who get us. And I mean, for someone like him who is a genius, it must be incredibly, uh, incredibly rewarding. And look, as, as Murray said, they're not unbeatable by any manner of means, but they're certainly on the right track. Murray, in a minute or less, how are we going to beat them? Not giving them the opportunities Italy gave them with loose passes to ground. There were instances maybe of that, a bit of sloppiness in Ireland's play last weekend that would worry me. Um, but Ireland have to have more clarity in what they're doing this week. I felt that was just a little bit lacking again, and that's been intermittent through this era. There was a couple of nice strike plays, but some of the some of the attack, even with 14 men, it didn't look really convincing, and, and Ireland's players didn't know, look like they knew exactly where they were going to be. So I think it needs to be a really refined, simple game plan that doesn't have a, a whole lot of major variety to it but is really well put together with Paul O'Connell's stamp all over, line out more time. Um, and the kicking game needs to be much, much better. There were too many errors in that last weekend. It was really damaging. So if they can shore up those things um, and take every single opportunity in the French half, I'd love to see Ireland just kicking their goals when they get a chance in, in, that, in that French half um, and make it a battle, then they're in with a shout. I do think France are going to win. I think they're a better team, better coached, but I don't think it's beyond Ireland's capabilities. Bert, your prediction? Yeah, unfortunately, the same. I, I, I think, um, I think they just have too much ability to. Our defense isn't locked in yet. If we had a really good defense, um, you, you could say, yeah, we can, we can withstand, um, their their attack. But I just see us giving up two two tries, um, you know, soft tries, and and, and that'll be that'll be enough. So unfortunately, I think I have to fancy France. Give us the Gav prediction now. Uh, France by fifteen to twenty, I think. Oof. Uh. <laughs> I know, I know. It's a soccer point right at the end. I keep doing it. I'm really sorry to people. Uh, we've got a wrap there, boys. Uh, we will be back, by the way, tomorrow with a Zoom event for the 42 members. Members, not the 42.ie. The, mem- uh, the details as well are on the 42. Just scroll down the rugby column there. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you, Murray. Thank you to everybody at home. This pos- podcast was sponsored by William Hill. Remember to gamble responsibly and visit dunleweed.net on how to do so. Until the weekend for Murray and until next Thursday for myself and Bernard. Mind yourselves. Take it easy. Enjoy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could have me five mil a year. I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie Robbie weekly. Then the first pass. Oh, 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 o